Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dan O'Connell. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Dan is a man of many hats, but uh, introduce him most formally as the Chief Strategy Officer for Dialpad, where he actually also worked for a predecessor company to Dialpad called Talk IQ, where he was CEO and president. Dan, I'll ask you the classic question I like to start with, which is, what's your favorite sales book of all time and why? My favorite sales book of all time, um, I actually read probably two years ago, which is New Sales Simplified by Mike Weinberg. And then he has a follow-up to that, which is Sales Management Simplified, um, which is just as exceptional. For New Sales Simplified, I think it's essentially critical reading for anybody that's um, in a hunting role for new logos. I made it a requirement in, in past lives for any AE or SDR or BDR that was joining that the organization to make sure they were reading it. And I think a lot of it is it just removes essentially the BS from sales and says, look, you got to have a plan, a plan for who are the right targets. You have to really plan and prepare for what are you going to say? What are the problems? What are the questions that you're going to ask or the problems you're going to solve? And then really have a process for execution. Um, and I think he does an exceptional job breaking that down into very simplified terms that are very digestible. And it's just a quick, easy read, as I said, that is very practical. So I took a, a lot away from it. And I think other people can get through those books really quickly and get a lot of value from them. Whenever I read books, I, I read on Kindle and I highlight and then I transfer and digest what I've highlighted. And one of the great things about Mike's books is I do tend to highlight a lot of how-to stuff. Yeah, and I think for business books, the, the nice part too is realizing that, that you can really skim through them fairly quickly. You don't have to read all of the details in depth. Um, and I think you can get through, as I said, both of those books really in a week if you go through the skimming and, and take some notes and um, there's tremendous value in them. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I actually, I've never been comfortable skimming. I feel like I have to read every word, but it sounds like you have a different approach. How do you, how do you approach these books? When I say skim, it's, it's not, um, you know, I'm not trying to speed read them and get through them as quickly as possible. But I do think at times there's things that, that can be repetitive in there. And I try to kind of pick through the chapters that are most applicable and skim through them and do the same thing on the highlights. And then I usually will take those highlights and either send myself some, some emails to remember them or share them with the team. But I try to get through them fairly quickly. And I think that's just a focus piece for me of, of sitting down and saying, I'm not going to read word by word. I'm going to skim through the chapters, skim through all the, the paragraphs and try to get through it and then perhaps spend some focus time on particular moments or topics that are of interest or are of pertinent value. Before we get into a little bit of your career progression and then basically have the phone call is cool again, love to hear what's the first thing you remember selling either, you know, either as a kid or a teenager or even maybe the first deal you did as a, as a sales professional. So I grew up in the heart of Silicon Valley, just outside Cupertino, which is where, where Apple's headquarters is. And so I fell in love with technology at a very early age. And something I, I particularly remember was in high school, I was the first person to, to buy a writable CD drive. We used to go to Fry's Electronics, which is a local computer store, buy writable CDs, take them to school. And it would be, you know, 30 bucks for five CDs um, that you could write to. Download Napster, go talk to people at school and basically tell them, look, I can go make you a custom CD and I'll charge you 20 bucks for it. And literally had the vast majority of people in, in school 
come and ask me for CDs and, and to make them custom CD. So pretty good profit margin on that, downloading MP3s at, at home, tying up my, my parents' phone line, which they weren't happy with at the time, and driving down to Fry's Electronics to buy writable CDs pretty much every other day. And then uh, in terms of my, you know, my first real job, right when I graduated from school, the tech bust had happened in 02. And uh, I was fortunate to walk into a, to a smaller startup at the time, which would happen to be Google, it was roughly probably 250 people at the time. So in a single building in, in Mountain View. And I had no perspective on, you know, Google was, was Google at that time. I literally was just trying to get a job after graduating. And there were some real difficulties in trying to find jobs for, for many folks. Um, and that first job was, was essentially selling AdWords. Um, so AdWords, with Cheryl Sandberg was running the AdWords organization. It was probably 40-odd people. And we were selling advertising and online ads. And it was terribly easy, I'll be honest, because you were taking ad dollars from somebody that was buying ads in a newspaper or in print or running radio ads or TV. And, and you were being able to turn around and say, look, we can tell you, you're only going to pay when your ads show up and there's visibility and somebody clicks on them. And then we can help you understand exactly the ROI that you're getting from those ads. So whether somebody is actually making a purchase. So at that time, it was a revolutionary way to do ads. And, and I'll be honest, was pretty easy to be successful. You still have to make phone calls, right? And the brand recognition was totally different at that point. And the internet was fairly young. The interesting piece on that was some skeptics that you would talk to. Again, anytime I think you're utilizing new technologies or new ways to do things, there are the skeptics and, and you get the objections of, well, I don't know, you know if this is going to work. Some people really like physical ads, which I also understand. Some, some people really like hearing their ads on the radio. People like seeing their ads on a billboard or seeing their ads in a print magazine because it's a little bit more perhaps emotional or creates an emotional connection. So there's definitely those moments of objections when I say it was relatively easy, meaning you've got a product that has an easy way to demonstrate ROI, which I think is critical for a lot of buyers and help makes that decision a lot easier. At the time, were you selling more on the B2C side or more on the B2B side, or it was a mix at the time? It was actually a mix. Um, so initially, it was um, B2B and B2C, and then I actually moved into the B2B side. And actually, one of the first deals that I did um, was actually with Asus, who was a hardware manufacturer for PCs and PC components. At the time, Intel had a co-op marketing campaign with them. And essentially part of the deal was whatever one of the hardware manufacturers would spend in online advertising, Intel would actually match. So that was also a nice way to go into a deal to say, look, if you spend 50,000 bucks a month, Intel is going to match that. And so it was a nice way to go in there. You've got a, this great product. Google was powering Yahoo search at the time too. It had actually getting a lot of value um, and a lot of momentum in terms of the search business. And then you also had kind of co-op dollars that were coming in. So it's so one of the first deals I remember going in. It's also one of the first times that I was drastically underprepared for a business meeting. So I'm a 23-year-old. I'm driving out to Fremont, their headquarters in Fremont. And I was expecting to meet two people to get this deal done and kind of go through a, a presentation and it's the first time that I walked into a room of 16 gentlemen, all in suits, sitting around a table. And I am drastically not prepared for that. Good learning moment of uh, making sure that you confirm a lot of details before you show up to a business meeting. We still got the deal done, but I look back at that and it says, good learning moment um, early on in my sales career. Were you on your own or did you have your sales manager in tow? No, I was on my own at the time. 
That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are things that happen in fast growth startups at the time, which is uh, sometimes they're, you're still building processes and everyone's um, scurrying along. And I think they're really enjoyable, funny moments to look back on in hindsight. But as I said, I was literally sweating through my shirt when I walked into that room and had the oh man moment of, okay, I can do this, but I'm going to have to definitely put my game face on. Again, you learn a lot from those experiences. I think you learn a lot more from the mistakes and the challenging things that happen, whether in your career or in life, than you do from all the success that one has. I did want to circle back to something you said, which is to be prepared to come in and deliver a presentation. In the B2B sales world right now, there's sort of, I mean, at least two camps or two schools of thought on whether or not you actually should have a formal presentation of any kind coming into meetings. How has that evolved as you've watched that over the years? Yeah, my personal take is you should always be prepared with a presentation, whether that's in selling software or even trying to raise money. I think you should always come in prepared with a presentation. Now, whether you decide to use the presentation is you know another decision to make, and I think you can get a read on on the room. Oftentimes, people will turn around and just say, "Hey, why don't you go through you know kind of the pitch or the overview in five minutes and kind of skim through it?" And I actually appreciate that. Usually, when people are are coming in trying to sell me software or talk to me about things, I usually want a quick overview just from them in their own words. But I usually want them to go through it fairly quickly, and that's not because of you know ADD and difficulty paying attention. It's more or less like I just want to hear the overview in their own words, and then I want to get into actually having a conversation because I think the questions in that conversation is where really you start to understand the problems and the objections and try to drive the alignment. What are the things that you want your own salespeople to have in their overview presentation? We require everybody to know our company pitch, whether they're sales or in marketing or even our engineers. So everyone goes through essentially prepping for the dial pad corporate pitch. But the things that we go through are, are who's dial pad. Um, we go through telling our story. Where do we start? What makes us different or unique? Um, who are our investors? Who are the brands that use us? Why do they use us? And then it gets into the problems that we solve. We do talk about features at a very high level. Again, that's namely just to say, here's the products that we do and here's what they can solve for you. And then it gets into the conversation piece. So it's really our pitch deck starts with no more than seven slides when it really covers kind of the basics and then drives into having a conversation and talking through the problems that that organization is trying to solve and how we can hopefully fix them. I have one slide and it's my favorite slide of all time. It came from Somebody pitched me years ago on basically a use case slide, and it had, let's say, six use cases on it. And we just got into a conversation about which ones of these are problems that you're trying to solve. And I found that to be one of the best sales conversations I had on the receiving end. I guess when you talked about the slides that address the problems you guys solve at Dialpad, is it that sort of a thing? Is it a use case slide or is it something even higher level than that? Definitely agree on having a use case slide. We also have a consolidation slide, which is very visual, which I love, which basically shows here's a traditional technology stack um, that people, organizations may have. And then here's how we can help simplify that in a very visual, um, impactful way. I think it just makes it very, very clear of where we fit in and some of the value that we can provide around consolidation if that's one value or problem that somebody's trying to solve for. So I do love that slide that one of our enterprise AEs came up with. And, and now we've pushed out to everybody to go and leverage and utilize. You said that every one of your folks across the organization needs to be certified on the pitch. How do you actually certify them? 
Yeah, so we literally set up monthly certifications and require people to go through them within every organization and track actually performance on those certifications. Um, so we expect people to get through them um, essentially the first time through. Sometimes it takes you know people to go through it twice. But that's just an expectation. Our marketing team was just off-site going through um, not just the company pitch, also our product pitches. The point of that is, one is you want everyone to have the same message when they talk to people. Different folks go to different conferences or talk to different individuals. You want everyone to have the same story. And I think that story is really important to be consistent. And then two is you want people to also understand what they're building. And I think it's really important for engineering teams, marketing teams, recruiting teams to all understand the problems that you're solving, because that allows you to actually relate it in, in a better way to people. And I would assume that certification is using that seven slide deck and presenting it and then scored against some sort of a rubric. Exactly. And we do recordings. Um, we obviously take the recordings of the certifications. We share those, um, give everybody a score. We reward them, the top performers on that as well. We give scores not just on product knowledge, but I haven't thought of a better word for this, but I would classify it as authentic passion, which I think anytime you're giving a presentation or engaging with people, you have to connect with people. I think that's actually what matters almost most is, is you have to sound excited about what you're selling or what you're doing. And if not, then people read that. Um, and I think you can read that in musicians that go through motions. I think you can read it in athletes that are going through motions. And you can see it in people in their day-to-day -day jobs as well. Um, and so I think you have to be really cognizant of, of how do you show up if you're giving a presentation and put your game face on and try to be engaging and creative and have an opinion and drive some value and be entertaining. Because I think people are also looking for that to some extent. That's charisma. That's, that's what it is. It's authentic passion without regard for how others are going to perceive you. So let's get back to your career wisdom. So you're doing about three and a half, close to four years as an individual account executive. Then you move into management. What was that like? What were some of the big challenges that you faced as you made that move? You know, one of the biggest challenges going from an individual contributor into management at the same company. So I think there's challenges if you leave an opportunity or leave where you're at to go into management in a new place. But I think one of the challenges was now being responsible for some of my peers. So I was part of a sales organization and a sales team, and I was promoted as the manager and then had responsibility for my peers. So people I you know, was previously grabbing beers with. And not to say that any of that changes, but there has to be a conversation around, well, now I'm responsible for your performance. And I think initially, you know, some of the challenges, and, and this takes some time to learn is, you know, I think initially when people can get promoted in the management, they want to be the likable manager as opposed to the effective manager. Um, and I think, you know, those are definitely mistakes that I made along the way of, you know, I was managing my peers and these were friends that I'd been at Google for four years with. And I was being tasked with their calibrations and performance reviews. And that was going to impact their promotions and how much they got paid and stock options and things to that nature. And that can be a lot for people to take on and to realize that, look, you shouldn't worry about if people are going to like you. Um, I think what you ultimately need to focus on is are people going to respect you? If you focus on just being the manager that people like, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will drive respect or that you will be that effective. And it's not to say that, look, you shouldn't work to be amicable and get along with people and, and have fun, because I also think that's important and part of values that great teams have as well. Yeah, it's certainly not one to the exclusion of the other. A book that I do reference quite a decent bit is uh, Kim Scott Malone's Radical Candor, which is to care deeply, which I think is the likable part. And the challenge directly, which is the performance and results expectation part, 
And to be a successful manager, you have to be comfortable being in both those zones. And I think so many managers have that vulnerability, I guess, that you had and I had, uh, which was, yeah, you want to be liked. So you almost hold back on the constructive feedback that would actually help people learn and grow. I think people are looking for a sense of belonging when they join a team. I think they want to know that they're really cared for by their manager, that their manager cares about them as a person and cares about them as a professional. And, and again, that means the quicker you can build that type of relationship and bring the walls down and start to have real conversations, whether those are conversations around performance or challenges or career progression, that's going to bring everybody closer. It's going to build a much stronger relationship. And I think that's going to ultimately lead to better performance and ultimately a place where people are going to turn around and say, I really liked working for that person. I got a lot of value out of it and I really respect them and I probably like them. I consider myself a career professional middle manager. As head of new business sales, I would assume you're managing managers or managing directors at that point. Yeah, that was correct. When you make that move, and this is something I struggle with, how do you maintain that connection with the individual contributors who are responsible for driving the success of the business when you just don't have as much time with them? How have you tried to keep those relationships strong and show that you care? You have to get crafty. You know, I think one is finding the time for it and also believing that that's really important. And if something's important, you're going to prioritize it or you're going to, you know, subconsciously you won't. And you try to figure out how to scale yourself because as I said, you start to run out of time. So I'd actually set up tea time and have open office hours. That was an opportunity for anybody within the team or the organization to come in and just spend time. And people could book 15 minutes to come in. Um, I also welcomed full teams to come in. I would also just proactively go and sit on the floor. I, I've never had an office. I really am a big fan of the open workplace, even though that's kind of getting some backlash these days now. Uh, but a lot of it is just making time to get to know people and ask people to go to coffee or grab lunch with them. I think something that I've noticed in, in my career is as you become more senior, I think people can become a little bit more hesitant to reach out to you to catch up for coffee and, and they can be a little bit guarded and they're, they're overthinking perhaps sometimes what they want to say. And I think some people just get worried about, you know, am I going to ask the CEO to lunch or am I going to go ask Dan, he's the chief, you know, whatever my title is, not that it matters, where I'm like, I'm just a person, like I would love to, to go to lunch and just catch up and we don't have to catch up about work. Um, you know, I'm happy to, to talk about, um, you know, kind of what we're talking about here. So I would just encourage people to also do that with their managers and the, and the senior leaders within their org, which is just like, don't overthink stuff. I think those people are also wanting to spend more time with people. You know, you try to find creative ways to do it. And then ultimately, you have to prioritize it. At AdRoll, I actually wrote holiday cards to my team with 70 sellers at that time, just on the new business side. And I wrote holiday cards to all 70 of them. And I don't think people expected stuff like that. Um, and again, it took time at home to write it. But those little things actually have a big impact on people. And so I would just encourage leaders to think about little things that, that actually can have a pretty profound impact. Do you have a system for keeping track of what people's individual hobbies and preferences are? I've always meant to do that. And I've sometimes started and my systems have failed. Do you have a good system for that so that you can be more personal when you write those 70 letters? I personally don't have a good system for it. Something that Dialpad does, which I think is unique, I haven't seen it before, is we actually have user manuals. Anytime there's a new hire in your first week, you actually write your user manual. And your user manual outlines your interests, career progression, where you want to get to, and also how to work with people, um, which is really interesting. 
And so those are things that I would definitely come this holiday season, go back and actually reference um, because I think it gives a lot of details on people. And then you also kind of pick up things as you build relationships with people on, you know, this person's likes music or this person is big into hiking or swimming, whatever it might be. You brought us forward a little bit into talk IQ and dial pad. And I think that's a good segue into how the phone call is actually working again and you can do new things with it. And I guess conversation intelligence in general. So what are you thinking about the future of conversations? People have these conversations in businesses every day, whether they're over the phone or whether they're in person. And I talk about it as voice being kind of the last offline data set. You know, we know how people interact on the web. You know, we know what people say in email. It's pushed to a CRM. But then every day we have these conversations. And, and us as humans, we take bad notes or we don't take notes at all. We forget them. And so it really became apparent that, look, if there was a technology that could help you understand a conversation and transcribe it. So if you take speech recognition, and then if you utilize natural language processing or NLP, which is just a fancy way of saying, how do we take text and then start to understand what that text is saying or meaning? Well, then I can really start to understand this data set. And if I can start to understand that data set, then a business can start to make better decisions and be more efficient, whether that is selling more or reducing churn or onboarding faster, whatever it might be. And that to me is really the future where the phone call is now a delivery agent of these technologies. It really becomes you want to show up in as many conversations as possible and provide value on top of those conversations, whether that's after the fact, meaning providing a recording and insights and analytics, or in real time as the conversation's ongoing to say, you know, Jeremy just asked about pricing. Dan, here's what you need to know about pricing. Or Jeremy just asked about this competitor. Here's what I need to know to actually talk more competitively against that competitor. So I think there's just massive opportunities when we get into conversations in general to both augment that conversation and also learn from it. There was a stat I read recently that when objections are lobbed, the top performers will respond with a question 54% of time, whereas an average or bottom performer may only respond with a question, let's say 30% of the time, right? So you can, you can actually extract those super actionable insights out of, out of that information. Yeah. And that stuff is, you know, going to change the way that you think about onboarding your teams or the way that you think about engaging with the prospects to help win them over. And these are all things that we haven't been able to quantify in the past, or it's been very challenging to quantify in the past. And so I think those are just massive opportunities for business to take advantage of. Can you see a world or are you imagining a world where when salespeople go and have face-to-face -face meetings with prospects, and or existing customers for renewal, upsell, value conversations, what have you, that those conversations would also be recorded? I do see opportunities for them. I think voice is obviously the next input for our devices. We see that in our consumer devices, um, you know, our phones that will soon show up in our cars. And then I think it will show up in business, not only as a way to control software, but also to understand these in-person meetings. And whether those are hardware devices, you know, I'm looking around in the conference room I'm in right now, there's a couple of devices sitting on the table and I'm like, oh, it could be one of those devices. Or we walk around with a high fidelity microphone in our pocket everywhere we go, which is our phone. When we want to capture a conversation, I think we will see the value from it and it will start to become more prevalent. I definitely think that that will happen. Assuming people know that they are being recorded, People really don't mind. Um, and a good test, when I was at Talk IQ and we were going through our, our Series A, I knew this question would come up around recording. And I knew investors would always ask that. So what I would do actually going into the meetings with investors was I would go in and say, hey, you know, 
Before we start the conversation, do you mind if I just record the conversation just because I don't want to take notes in our meeting and I want to be present and um, it just helps me learn. And you're going to ask things that I may not have always the best answers for. There wasn't a single investor that said I couldn't record a pitch. You're definitely walking the walk on that one too. You're priming them for that question, aren't you? Yeah. And the beauty of it is then they forget that they've said to an in-person meeting to raise money that I have no issue. We'll go through the pitch and in, in minute 32, they're going to ask me, what about call notifications? And I would simply say, hey, remember when I just showed up in person and I asked you if I could record the conversation and not one of you had an issue with it? The same thing happens on the call. The vast majority of people, when you explain it, hey, you know, we're doing this for quality assurance or we're doing this to help coach our teams. Hey, I'm brand new. I take bad notes and I want to learn from it. Again, if you can humanize some of this stuff, it really isn't an issue for people. I think it becomes an issue when you give prompts to people and almost act like, Jeremy, I know this is really weird. My manager told me that I need to say this. And um, do you care if I record this call? You're giving a bunch of prompts for there to be an issue. Yeah, just make it natural, right? Exactly. Fascinating conversation about a lot of different topics. If people do want to get in touch with you or learn a little bit more about Dialpad, what's the best way to do that? They can just go to dialpad.com. They can find me on LinkedIn. I also have a medium that I post to. Definitely feel free to, to reach out and connect. And I'm, I'm actually happy to find time to connect with people and hopefully share wisdom, which usually comes from making a bunch of mistakes. So again, that was Dan O'Connell. He is Chief Strategy Officer at Dialpad and shared his wisdom on career progression as well as the future of voice. Thanks again, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.